The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We're going to turn to God's Word now. Um, if you have a Bible, uh, we are in Revelation 1. I know that's not exactly where you would expect to go for a uh, Christmas Advent sermon series, but we have been in our big series called All Things New um, through the whole Bible, we've been starting all the way at Genesis 1, looking at how God designed this world for us to enjoy Him and to be refreshed in Him and to be renewed by, by Jesus. And now we arrive at the end of that whole kind of big storyline, and we are looking here at Revelation 1. Um, very different pictures and images from the way we started out in Genesis 1 but still very renewing and refreshing. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read all of Revelation 1 for us. Um, and it's a wild ride, and we're going to in, uh, dig into this and see what God has for us after we pray and ask for God's help. By the way, um, as we've always done, if you have any questions, my phone is right down there. My assistant is going to hand this to me here. Thank you. Um, if you have any questions, uh, you can uh, text them to me. And I will do my best to answer after the sermon, okay? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you, and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Samaria and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a gold sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp sword, two-edged sword, and his face was like the shining sun in full strength. When I saw him, 
I fell at his feet as though dead. And he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades right there for the things that you have seen, that those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word and we try to understand this famous passage with lots of images that we don't quite understand, we pray that you would help us to experience the presence of Jesus among us, to feel his nearness, to see him for who he is, and to feel the touch, fear not, for you are with us. So we pray that you would help us in the waiting of knowing who you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I need to set up my timer so that I don't go, don't go too long here. Um, <laughs> thanks, Mike. <laughs> I knew that Mike would be the one to say, go for however long you want, Jacob. You get a bonus this morning. Um, <clears throat> waiting is a major deal um, in all of our lives. Uh, waiting is something that happens uh, that we don't exactly want. Obviously, there is waiting for Christmas morning. Uh, what are you going to get? I don't know. Does anybody here do Christmas gifts on Christmas Eve? I know some people do that. I mean, or like one gift and then you do like all the other things. But, you, you know, we're all like right now, like you're all, everybody's waiting for their Christmas gifts. Like there are um, major things that go on in our lives right now. Like, for example, we're all kind of waiting for this pandemic to be over. And um, all signs are that it's not. Um, we uh, all have family tensions that we are waiting to be resolved, family members that we wish would come back to healthy living. We have increased work difficulty under these circumstances that we are waiting to get back in, back in place. And then there's minor things that we wait for, like getting in the wrong line at Walmart. Um, <laughs> I don't know what it is with Walmart in the last month or two, but like, bro, like the lines are crazy. And I'm just like, it doesn't matter which one I pick. They're all just like, yeah, I might as well take a book. Um, Waiting is never invited. Waiting is something that comes into our lives, even in the best of circumstances, that interrupts exactly what we would want. There's good reasons to wait, right? Um, You want to wait nine months for a baby to be born. Generally a good thing, right? You want to wait to go on vacation when the weather's best and good. Uh, No offense to our teenagers, but uh, we want to wait for you to be 18 until you can vote. You know, we want you to be a little bit older, I mean, at this point, why not? You guys might have always go ahead and vote, but we want to wait for good things. But sometimes there are major things that we wait for, like justice in situations that seem to perpetually be unjust. Waiting for improvements in work conditions that never seem to get better. Waiting um, for things that we know should be right that never seem to get corrected. In those situations, waiting becomes painful. It becomes unwelcomed, and it's a bit of a barrier. That is exactly what we're talking about here in this moment in this All Things New series, right? We've been talking about all the good things, the ways God has designed the world to be, the way God has designed us to be renewed in Him, to experience the experience of being new in Jesus. We 
we come into this Advent series, and the very nature of waiting is a part of Advent, right? Advent is the sudden arrival, and what we experience when we talk about waiting is exactly what the people in the Bible experience with waiting, right? You have to remember that this whole, up until this part of the Bible, is like 3,000 years of people just kind of sitting around and being like, okay, when are you going to do what you did? And there's these exact moments where God shows up and does something, and there's these exact moments that God shows up and does something, and then there's still more waiting. Because it's, you know, like, God, it seems like you're there, but not quite. It seems like you've you're done it, but not quite. And that's exactly what we find. You know, we have Mary, who is suddenly, you know, here's Jesus. He's the arrival of the, this king, and he's this little boy that she has got to wait, and then she sees what he becomes. Or Zachariah, who's been waiting for this child to come. Everybody in the story of Christmas is all waiting for something. Everybody is waiting around. And that's what we come to Revelation 1 this morning with. We're, in a weird way, we are entering into the story of Advent for Jesus with this whole story of everything after Jesus. And it's still much the same. We know what God's doing. He's done some of it. There's still stuff to be done. And the world still seems crazy. So then... How do we wait in the midst of this tension for God to do something among us? This is what we're looking at here in Revelation 1. Okay, now Jesus is here. How do we wait faithfully in a world gone mad? So, what we're going to talk about this morning is this exact idea of waiting. The main point of what we're going to see here in Revelation 1, and I'm just going to apologize up front, we aren't preaching through Revelation, so there's a lot of things that we're not going to like pick up on. Um, but we're going to pick up on some of the main ideas out of Revelation 1. So the main idea here that we're going to be seeing here in Revelation 1, in the pain of waiting, we endure in hope because Jesus is near. Right? To be clear, what we're not going to be talking about here in Revelation 1 is how to get rid of waiting. We're going to actually see um, it's a part of the program. But we're going to be seeing here in the midst of waiting, whatever waiting is for you, we're going to get to that, whatever waiting is for you, we can't solve the issues but what we can do is we can try to see how Jesus fits into the picture of waiting. So that's what we're going to do. What we're going to start at is we're going to start here in verse 9. And because we're not preaching through Revelation, we're not going to pick up all the verses. We're going to pick up some of the main ideas here. And we're going to start here with verse 9, the trial of waiting. The trial of waiting. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, I want you to pause here for a second and just kind of focus in on this word John and consider with me a little bit of who John is. I've been, uh, I've been listening to some biographies lately or interviews with people who've had these incredible lives. And so like Fresh Air recently had uh, with Terry Gross, right? Fresh Air, Terry Gross. She recently had Dave Grohl on. I don't know if you know who, everybody knows who, Dave, if you don't know who Dave Grohl is, I don't know if you listen to music, but Dave Grohl, like my wife, my, <laughs> my wife does not know who Dave Grohl is, except for me ranting about him. So Dave Grohl uh, started out as the drummer for Scream, a punk band. Um, and then he, when that band closed down, he famously auditioned for a little band called Nirvana. Um, and then when he joined Nirvana, um, he was obviously instrumental to their uh, cataclysmic rise. And then after Nirvana closed for lack of a better term, um, 
he, he created the band called Foo Fighters. Now, Nirvana and Foo Fighters have both gone on to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Foo Fighters, this last year. And then now he's got a little family, and in the interview, he, he talks about his nervousness of getting up on stage and playing uh, Beatles songs with his daughter at her like high school thing and all that stuff. But he, here's just this guy from a single mom from, I don't know, like Ohio or something like that? Where is he from? Yeah, Ohio. Like, I mean, no offense, but New Hampshire's a little bit better than Ohio. But he's from Ohio, from nowhere, and he goes and is not only inducted once, but twice in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, this crazy life. Where do you think about our Paul McCartney, who's from Liverpool, goes and joins to start a band called The Beatles, his life, just the crazy things that they go and do. John is a little like those guys, except not the rock and roll lifestyle. You know? <laughs> Here he is, John, a fisherman, right? In the Potong town, potentially the Ohio of the Middle East, I don't know. But the middle of nowhere, a nobody. He's a bit of a fiery, fiery guy. He's got a brother, James and John. They're both fishermen, and lo and behold, this guy comes into town, and they become friends with him, ends up becoming not just any guy around this guy named Jesus, but ends up becoming the top three besties with who happens to be the son of God, the King David's heir. Kind of a big deal. Not only that, he follows this guy all the way to Jerusalem, watches as he is crucified by the big boss of the day, and at the crucifixion is given his mom to take care of. I mean, Jesus was a mama's boy and he hands his mom off to his best friend, John. And then he witnesses this guy rise from the dead, make him a fish breakfast someday, and then rise up into the sky to ascend, to reign by God's right hand. And then John joins that guy's mission. He writes a few famous books. Don't know if you've heard of them the Gospel of John, and a few letters, and this book. He also comes up with, kind of like Paul McCartney, these famous lines like, God is love. Like, how many people, whether believers or not, know that line? That line has sustained through over 2,000 years of human history. Everybody knows the line, God is love. And here is this guy who is arguably probably one of the most famous people in human history. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account of the Word of God. This guy, I don't know if he has a rock and roll hall of fame for Bible characters, but he's certainly in the top, is alone and stranded on an island in prison. That's where we find him. Of all the places that we can find John in his life, the place that Jesus wants to reveal himself to him and to us in this whole waiting period is this inconvenient, undesired, incredibly boring existence that John has on an island, alone. Here we find John. Here he is, inconvenienced by something that did not go his way. But John's perspective isn't sitting around, oh, woe is me. Remember that time that Jesus and I went fishing after he was raised from the dead and he, you know, made me a fish breakfast? fish tacos, I guess, whatever. Not talking about that. Here he is. He's worshiping Jesus. He's still doing his thing as a Christian, believing Jesus, worshiping him. And Jesus comes to speak to him. And what does John help us? How does John bring us into that? Look here with me. I, John, your brother and partner. Now, I want you to put a line here. 
in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. What I want, uh, first, before we get into talking about this, I just want you to understand, when we're looking at this, uh, sometimes when people read the tribulation word, they're kind of like, oh, is that like all that left behind stuff? Uh, no, left behind is totally bunk, and that's not what we're talking about here. Um, we're talking about like what Christians have believed for the last 2,000 years, um, what is, which is not the same as that stuff. What I want you to know here is that in the middle of this, there's a Greek phrase going on here, and it's very kind of like basic, like Greek 101. Your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. The way the Greek is constructed here is basically like this. There's one main, there's one main, it's called the article, the, and then there's everything else that comes after it. Tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance. They're all gathered together in this Greek phrase to be one thing. So there's three categories inside this one big category. So you can't separate one out and say, oh, well, John's in the tribulation, but we're in the patient endurance. No, it's all one big thing. And we're going to kind of swing back to this at the end of the sermon. But the main thing to see here is that when John talks about being a believer in Jesus, here's this guy who's had this classic, like this rock and roll hall of fame life with Jesus that we all like, bro, like I would love for the resurrected Jesus to make me some fish tacos some morning. This guy's had that. And then what he says is your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance are in Jesus. It's one big category to be a Christian is to have to endure the patient endurance and the tribulation. We all want the kingdom. That sounds great. But basic program, being a Christian 101, is tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance. That's what it means to be a Christian, is all three of those, all three of them at the same time, no exceptions. So if anybody comes to you and says, I want to help you become a Christian and get rid of all that waiting and tribulation and endurance. I just want to help you arise to your Christian life now. Let's get rid of all that stuff. You're going to be living your best life now. They're lying to you, and you shouldn't listen to them. (laughs) Because being a Christian is inherently waiting, tribulation, distress, right? (laughs) You can imagine, like some of us, we come to our Christian life, and we're kind of like, I would really like it. If I could become a Christian, follow Jesus, but not have any of this bad family dynamics, maybe a troubled marriage, maybe difficult family life or work life, all these other things. I mean, not to mention all the things that I've got going on in my own life that need to get fixed. All of those things. I'd like for those things to get solved as I become a Christian, because then Christian sounds like, it, this sounds like it's an easy life. You can imagine like the nurse taking you in <laughs> for like, to meet Jesus, like, I would like to meet Jesus. Okay, right. so what would you like? Mm-hmm. I'd like no more sin in my life. Oh, okay. We'll, we'll talk. <laughs> I would like for my parents to get along and for there to be no more problems in my family life. Okay. I'd like for my job to be better and more impressive and not boring. <laughs> okay, let me go get the doctor. <laughs> That's not the way Christian life works. Christian life is filled with boring, mundane uninteresting stuff that's just baggage that comes along with being in Jesus that never goes away. We learn how to live with it, and we learn how to process it and do grow, but it's not as though becoming a Christian somehow means that you don't have difficulties in life. This is what we want to start out with by saying just simply that the Christian life is full of waiting. 
waiting for all these tensions and difficulties in our life that just don't seem to get resolved. They're not going to get resolved easily or quickly. Now we want to get into the meat of this passage, okay? You guys cool with that? All right. We're going to turn here to verse 12. The mystery of waiting. Here's where things get interesting. So here we have John, right? On uh, on the island. And Jesus speaks to him. And then, here we want to see the mystery of waiting. Verse. I'm going to read verses 12 to 20. And then we're going to swing back and look at verses 12 to 16, a little bit more closely. Then I turned and saw the voice of speak to me, and on turning I saw the seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and a gold sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters, In his right hand he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sword, like a two-edged sword. From his mouth came a a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, these things that you have seen. Those that are, and those that are, um, and those that are to take place after this. As for the seven, mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the right, are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay. First thing before we get into talking about the details of this, when we talk about um, prophecy imagery, right? kind of what's going on here is like, this is a crazy image. Like, what's going on here? We got somebody with a, a sword coming out of their mouth. Like, it's kind of like you would think about like a Marvel movie, right? Where like these crazy things happen, but it's really based on a comic book. This is a bit of like the comic book of the Bible. There is some imagery going on. There's pictures going on that are outlandish in a certain sense. They're not meant to scare us, but they're meant to draw us into a story. They're meant to draw us into a drama. It, it's kind of like if you were, has anybody been to the top of Mount Lafayette here? Oh, you guys have? There's a few people. All right. If you've been to the mount, top of Mount Lafayette, like you get up there. I went up there at the beginning of November one year, and it is stunning, right? The air is super, super cold, first of all, like wicked cold up there, more than you would expect. At least I did, because I don't know anything. Um, cold, but the, the, ser- the serenity of looking out into the horizon, and you're like, well, it looks like little hills, but they're like, these little hills are like 4,000 foot mountains. Like, that's just like, that sounds like I'm a child. <laughs> like, how do you begin to describe seeing the top of what it looks like to view the mountains from the town of, uh, top of Mount Lafayette? Or if you've been to the Grand Canyon, you look at the Grand Canyon, you're kind of like, it's like a big gutter in the ground. It's like, how do you capture this magnificent sight? It's almost insulting to the sight itself to then describe, describe it with words. That's a little bit what's going on here. Here's John experiencing this magnificent sight of Jesus Christ in his full unveiled glory. And he's trying to capture 
this picture of who Jesus is in these words. He's, he's pulling from all these Old Testament references, but unfortunately, we're not going to be able to get into this morning because we just don't have the time. But he's trying to capture this magnificent picture of who Jesus is and what it's like to see him. And it's a little kind of clunky, kind of like if I were to use my words to try to describe the Grand Canyon, right? It's like, well, you know, it's, it's, there's this green layer and this red layer, and it's super deep, and it's cold in the bottom, and you're like, but that's nothing like what the Grand Canyon actually experiences like. Well, experiencing Jesus in his full unradiated glory, despite having been made fish tacos by the resurrected Christ, this guy falls at his feet as though dead. So let's just put that in perspective as we're kind of looking through this. Here is what it's like to see Jesus. So let's look. There's like eight things. I made a list of them just so that we can kind of keep it all clear. Because here we have Jesus standing in the midst of seven lampstands with a robe and a sash, white hair, flaming eyes, bronze feet, a white, a water fountain voice. Water fountain sounds too trite, right? But you get what I mean. Seven stars in his right hand, a sword coming out of his mouth, and a face as bright as the sun. So here's the eight things. I just want to give us some kind of idea. Again, if we were preaching through this, I would pull out each of the Old Testament imagery that's behind each of these. But a robe and a sash. So a robe, a white robe, would have been worn by priests in the temple. And a sash would have been worn by the king. So here we have, just immediately off the bat, an image of somebody who is a priest and a king. The white hair, eternal, is a, is a picture, again, pulling from Old Testament imagery, um, you know, kind of like we do today. Somebody's got white hair, you're kind of like, oh, he's old and wise. Image of old and wise, pure wisdom. Eyes, purity of insight and judgment, right? So here is the burning eyes of, of God seeing into the purity of who we are. Not that we are pure, but that he sees with clear judgment about who we are. Sees into the heart of who we are. Bronze feet, again, this is an uh, image that would have been used for purity um, as a burnished bronze. It's just like gleaming. But if it's his feet, then it's a way, it's his, uh, the way that he walks. So it's a, a moral purity in his way. The voice of God, the, the, uh, in Ezekiel 124 and, 30, and 43.2, um, the voice of God is compared to a mighty rushing waterfall. So here we have, again, the, the voice of Jesus being tied to the voice of God himself. Clearly, um, the sword coming out of his mouth is a reference to the word of God being used to divide and to, and to understand at the heart of man. The face, um, again, pulling from Old Testament imagery, back in the Old Testament, you, you would um, the prayer uh, of the Shema would be, may the, may the face of Yahweh shine upon you. You know what I'm talking about? Here we have, again, Jesus' face connected to the face of God himself. Now, the lamp and the stars is where we're going to get a little bit, we're going to delve into that a little bit because it's important to the passage and where we find ourselves in this passage. The lamp and the stars uh, are just briefly, I'm just going to say this and then we're going to swing back into it, connected to the universal church, the lamp, uh, the stars being um, in Jesus' right hand, the seven the seven stars being in his right hand are the, the saints who have gone to be with Jesus. So it's the dead saints, basically. And the lamps being the lampstands of the living saints, people who are still alive, shining for Jesus, so to speak. Okay, are you guys tracking with me? Like, I know there's a lot, but we're going to... Okay, are we tracking? I don't get... I, I've got a thumbs up from, from my assistant over here. 
Um, so the mystery of the lamps and the seven stars. So let's go. Uh, I'm going to pull together. Can we pull up the next that next slide of the the sevens? There we go. So this is going to kind of help us see where we find ourselves in this passage. So John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace you and peace from him who was and who is um, to come, and from the seven spirits that are before his throne. So we have seven churches, seven spirits. Then we have the seven golden lampstands in verses 11 to 12, and we have in the, Jesus standing in the midst of the lampstands. Verse 16, we have the seven stars, and then we have an interpretation of that at the very end of the passage. What I think is going on here is that the word seven, or the term seven, is just a, a Bible term to, con- to, um, to convey perfection, completion, purity. So you have the seven days of creation. They're at the beginning of Genesis 1. Again, we're going to preach through Genesis starting here in Jan- January, and we're going to get into that. But uh, seven is a term that's just used for completion and perfection. And so I think what's going on here is that when it says the seven spirits, what we're keying into there is that it's not like God has seven individual spirits, but we have before us a picture of God's complete and whole spirit that is connected to and tied into the seven lampstands, which is the church, the seven stars, which is the church. So the spirit is himself connected and tied into that which Jesus is standing amidst, which is the church, which again, so we're talking about like comic book imagery, but here is an image basically of Jesus reigning and ruling in all of his perfected glory, standing right where he wants to be. And where does he want to be where the spirit of God is in God's people? Is Jesus standing amidst his people that have been raised to new life by the spirit? The spirit is himself tied into the church the church is tied into Jesus by this image of seven, uh, seven lampstands, seven spirits, all that stuff. At the end of the day, I think what we are getting here is a picture of the spirit that is located where Jesus' body is. So the point of this is that the picture of Jesus and all his glory and mystery is somehow at the same time this Jesus with all of this crazy stuff being described about him and the Jesus who is with us in our very church right now. There is a connection and tie between this magnificent picture of who Jesus is and this experience of what our church is right now. This picture is describing what it's like for Jesus to dwell in his home with us, which is to say Jesus does not sublet his house. King's Cross Church, as much as we uh, may not have all the frills and excitement that we would hope to have or anything like that, Jesus dwells right here, right now, just like he does in Hope Tabernacle and other churches in the city. Jesus dwells among us by his spirit. He does not, he does not rent it out for somebody else to take care of. These churches that these letters are going to and the, the rest of the, the Book of Revelation, like some of those churches actually still exist to this day, um, but they're not like they didn't start out as like overly impressive churches. They were probably churches much like ours, you know, 100 people or so in the church, and you know, like people just trying to live their lives. And got people who work in the market, people who are tradesmen and blue collar people, and people who are raising families, and people who are in government, and all those sort of things. People who are all types of different people, but still in the midst of all of that is this Jesus who is incredible 
and amazing living in the midst of mundane lives, waiting for things to change that aren't really, you guys are really great, but we don't have like, we're just not like impressive people. We're just like normal, ordinary people, you know, like this is where Jesus, this is the type of picture that Jesus is. I'm just, I'm trying to think of ways to help us capture this idea that the way that we use our words to describe the Grand Canyon does a disservice to it is the exact way that I feel in this moment of trying to describe the glory of who this Jesus is who lives amidst us right now. And there's a lot of things that he's doing in the midst of our existence as a church, right? So Christ stands in the midst of our lampstand. There is a lampstand that Jesus tends to called King's Cross Church. He tends to it, make sure that it's thriving, growing, living, meeting, and shining, uh, shining for Jesus in the midst of Manchester's needs. So I think of the ways in which we have served as a church in the last month or so. There was folks who came and served the Thanksgiving pancake thing. They came and served our neighbors here in the, in the city to show them just the love of Jesus and the care of being a part of the community. We've got uh, the refugee family that we've been caring for. You guys have been like super generous and like trying to care for them and help them get settled. That's a part of Jesus shining for who he is in the midst of our city, right? Uh, Matt's going to be sending out something the next, next week. We're going to have an announcement about trying to take up um, socks to help our friends and families in transition who are right above us, right? Uh, trying to care for the people in our city, right? All of these pictures of who Jesus is, they are all pictures of Jesus revealing the glory and goodness of God in the midst of waiting. And what does that look like? It looks like doing regular, mundane, unimpressive things that really do shine for the glory of who Jesus is. I think that in the pain of waiting, one of the difficult things is that we often lose perspective. And we lose sight that this is the Jesus that lives among us. And we're not called to do things that are crazy and outlandish. We're simply called to be faithful. So I want to turn here um, as we kind of make the third turn here to the call of waiting for our lives right now. If I were to choose one of the letters that comes after this opening passage, to describe our church or speak to our church right now. There's seven letters that come. I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, but there's seven letters that come. Uh, five of those letters are corrective. Two of them are encouraging. Um, and certainly they're all encouraging, but two of them don't have corrections to the churches. Um, as I kind of look at those letters, and just from my vantage point as a pastor in this church, I think of uh, the one to Philadelphia here in chapter 3. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to read this for us because I feel like this certainly describes our experience right now. Uh, so chapter 3, verse 7, to the Church of Philadelphia, or the Church of King's Cross Church here in Manchester, New Hampshire, to the angel of the Church of Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who, is, who was the key of David, <clears throat> who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those who of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are the Jews and, and that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, 
and they will return and they will learn that I have loved you. I just want to pause and say, I don't think, I can't think of anything that applies to our church. <laughs> I can't think of anybody in the synagogue of Satan applying the King's Cross. So small exception there. Because you have kept my word about impatient endurance, I will keep you from the, uh, from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that you will not, <clears throat> so that no one will seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Ne- never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of God and the name of the city of God and the new, city, new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God and from uh, from out of heaven, my own new in uh, my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When I read this, I honestly the description of I know that you have but little power, but have kept my word and have not denied my name. That feels like a description of our church. We're not overly impressive, and yet here we are in the midst of our lives, trying to be faithful, jobs, work, family, fun, all that stuff. Here we are in the midst of all of that, trying to be faithful and waiting for Jesus to do more. It feels at times when we kind of describe who our church is, uh, speaking of Christmas movies, uh, we're a bit of like the Island of Misfit Toys, right? When you really kind of begin to consider who we are as people, you know, we've got families, we've got singles, we've got people that are in different jobs, we've got different political persuasions, we've got all different types of people, and yet uh, somehow we all come together on Sunday morning and we worship Jesus, and we try to figure out how to follow Jesus together in our small groups. Like, that's a bit of the island of misfit toys, and uh, you can you can figure out which one of those toys you are. Like, I'd, you can maybe talk to your small group, like, if I was like, described as uh, island of misfit toys, like, which one would I be? Like, well, you'd, you'd be the one, like, without the, the pull string. Like, I don't know. Anyhow. But in the midst of the waiting of our lives, Part of the reason I pull up John uh, Revelation 3 is verse 10, which I just want to pull out and connect through the rest of the book, and then we're going to swing back and consider waiting for our lives right now. You guys cool with that? You're cool? Okay. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming from the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Here we have this phrase, the patient endurance. This shows up again through the book of Revelation in chapter three, or chapter 13, verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance of the, and faith of the saints. And then chapter 14, verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Right? This is uh, the, the literal word. It's the same Greek word on all, in all three occasions. And I think the reason that this is a call for us as a church, quite simply, is because here we are in the midst of just continually difficult circumstances with pandemic. How do we make plans? What do we do? Decisions being made, things going on, not sure what's happening next. You know, what does 22 look like? Like, I don't know, 2021 did not look like anything that I'd planned, let alone 2020. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm still processing 2020 and we're going into 2022, (laughs) you know? So like, I don't know what to do with the next year that's starting. I think that what Jesus is calling us to just simply as a church is to continue to make it about him and to look at him and to not try to make any major life changes. I'm not saying you can't make decisions and changes and all that stuff, but I'm just saying like the patient endurance is a call to continue to press into who Jesus is. It is a call to continue to do what John does in chapter one, 
to worship Jesus, to hear him and see him. It is a call to continue to press in on knowing who Jesus is, even when the things that you want Jesus to change, kind of like John on the island of Patmos, do not change quickly. Just as a heads up, we get to the end of the book of Revelation, and John's still on the island. Hasn't left it. Nothing's changed, except his sight of who Jesus is. In the midst of the waiting, the most critical part is for us to continue to see how Jesus fits into the picture. The problem with waiting, and that's a problem what happens with each of these churches in this letter, in this letter is that waiting often exposes what we'd rather have and how we can shortchange to get what we want rather than Jesus. Each of these the five letters that correct churches, they're all correcting some way in which they have compromised the faith. They've tried to buckle down on preaching truth at the expense of love, or they've tried to buckle down on the meaning of grace at the expense of holiness. They've tried to buckle down on things that exclude or add to Jesus instead of, quite simply, maintaining the faithful endurance of holding on to Jesus. Period. That's what waiting does, is it exposes what we'd rather have. It exposes the way we'd fill out the equation, Jesus plus what we'd rather have. So the call for us is do not shortchange what God is doing in you in the midst of the waiting. Because what he's doing is helping you have a better sight of who Jesus is. Can I read a quote from, from Paul Tripp for us? Paul Tripp has this to say. Waiting is your calling. Waiting is your blessing. Every one of God's children has been chosen to wait because every one of God's children lives between the already of what Jesus has done and the not yet of him completing it. Already this world has been broken by sin and yet it has not been made new again. Already Jesus has come and yet not Yet has he returned to take you home to him forever. Already your sin has been forgiven, and yet have you not fully delivered from it. Already Jesus reigns, but not yet has his kingdom finally come. Already sin has been defeated, and not yet has it been completely destroyed. Already the Spirit has been given to you, and not yet have you been perfectly formed into the likeness of Jesus. Already God has given you his word, but not yet has it totally transformed your life. Already you have been given grace, and not yet has that grace been finished has that grace finished its work. You see, we are all called to wait because we all live right smack dab in the middle of God's grand redemptive story. We all wait for the final end of the work that God has begun in and for us. We don't just wait, we wait in hope. We wait uh, and what God does hope in God look like? It is a confident expectation of a guaranteed result. We wait believing that what God has begun, he will complete. So we live with confidence and courage. We get up every morning and act upon what is to come because what is to come is sure. And we know that our labor in God's name is never in vain. So we wait and act. We wait and work. We wait and fight. We wait and conquer. We wait and proclaim. We wait and run. We wait and sacrifice. We wait and give, we wait and worship. Waiting on God is action based on confidence and assurance of grace to come. This is what it means to be a believer. 
This is the very nature of what we celebrate in the Advent season, in waiting. I want to draw your attention back to chapter 1, verse 9, because this is what it means to be a believer. I, John, your brother and partner, and the tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus. This is what G.K. Beale calls the formula of kingship. This is what it means to reign with Jesus now. Here is Jesus who is described in all of his wonder and glory as a king of the universe. And what it means to be like him, to reign with him, to be in the kingdom like him, is to wait with him and like him in the midst of where we are right now. In the midst of what waiting looks like. I don't know what waiting looks like for you. What is, if we were to sit down and talk, like, what are you waiting on right now? What are you, to, to feel happy again? To feel like your life has some meaning or purpose? What are you waiting on? Where, where is the waiting point in your life right now? In that very space, with Jesus is what it means to wait with him and be like him. It, what's, it's what it means to push back against the darkness of this world and find the hope and light of Jesus in the midst of waiting. Waiting is to be like Jesus. And what we find in the midst of this passage is that Jesus likes to dwell where you are. That's where this... Jesus comes to meet John on a deserted island out in the middle of nowhere. Jesus comes to the corner of Valley and Wilson Street to sit with you in the midst of your waiting, to help you know that he is near in the midst of what you long for, which is more of Jesus. He feels the pain of what it means to wait. Jesus experiences the same yearning and longing for goodness, hope, truth, and justice, just like you, because he is the king. And then he sits down in the midst of your waiting and helps you become like him by the patient endurance and the tribulation and the kingdom of what it means to be a disciple in him. When you wait, you're longing and things aren't satisfied yet. That is the exact emotional seat that Jesus sits in with you. To find more of him and to experience his nearness with you. In this way, may we begin to feel ourselves more inside the Advent story of Christmas. This Jesus who is, and who was, and who is to come. Pray that God would help us, in the pain of our waiting, to endure in hope, because Jesus is Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.